You know, when, uh, when it's... Glad that you're all here. It, it's different than on, uh, on Wednesday night, everybody comes and sits over here. <laughs> so now, Sunday morning, you guys are over here. So, <laughs> um, Somebody jump up and pull those doors closed there. And uh, Rachel will get us going. Okay, thank you, Rachel, for getting us, getting us started. This is uh, the second half of a Sunday school lesson. So last week, we uh, started with our letter O, and uh, we decided to do ordinances of the church. Well, of course, there's two, but it took us all uh, hour to talk about baptism, and we, we didn't get around to the Lord's Supper. So we're going to do that this morning. Just by a way of uh, remembering what I said, that um, there are, uh, of uh, things like this, there are symbols that we use, something that just symbolizes uh, a representation, like having a cross on a church or a steeple, stained glass windows, and so forth. Secondly, churches have rites, R-I-T-E, which means that these are things that we might employ with regularity, times of service, uh, offerings, announcements, and things. And then thirdly, we have ordinances. And so uh, we defined an ordinance uh, from Augusta Strong when he said it's a symbolic rite. So it's a symbol, uh, as we'll talk about today, especially with the Lord's Supper. It's a rite in that it's something we do with religious significance. We do it on a regular basis. But it, an ordinance means it's something we must do. It's commanded in, in Scripture. And so uh, we have two of those. I compared it uh, to the, these things to foot washing, which some churches still do. Uh, but... We have never believed that foot washing was an ordinance. It's something you must do. If somebody wanted to do it, fine. I'm sure there are many people's feet who, that need to be washed and, and ought to be. And, and I'm sure it, can be, it, it has been used at some time in a, in a proper way of showing humility and servanthood and so forth. But to say that it's something that the church must do on a regular basis would be a totally different type of thing. So we reserve that for, for only two things. Now, we disagree with the Roman church that has seven sacraments, and uh, they say that there are seven things that must be uh, performed on a regular basis, uh, whether that's penance, uh, could be last rites, and things like that. We disagree. So we come down to two. As a matter of fact, uh, we're going to show in a little bit that uh, it's not uh, a sacrament at all, but rather a, a memorial service. I liken baptism to, uh, to a uniform that you put on. Remember that, that uh, uh, A.T. Robertson gave this analogy uh, some years ago. 
that when you're saved and you've accepted Christ as Savior, the baptism is your public demonstration of it. It's your public uh, act or uh, symbolic uh, action of death, burial, and resurrection. So when people are looking at that, they see you put under the water and brought back up, they realize that you are testifying to your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. After all, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. That's what the gospel is. Now, evangelism is preaching the gospel. It's telling people that they need to believe in this and commit themselves to it. So uh, we, have this, we have this symbol of the, uh, uh, this uniform that we put on. So if that's the uniform, and you've put on the uniform one time, once, of course, is how often you practice baptism, then the Lord's Supper is kind of like inspection, if we're going to keep the military uh, analogy here. If uh, baptism is the uniform that you put on, the Lord's Supper is frequent inspection that you have, you know, when you have to line up and, and the sergeant comes in front of you and sees if you're shaved right, see if your collar's turned down right, if your tie's made up right and your shoes are shined and, and, and all of that. But of course, it's a self-examination, but we do it often and we come before the Lord and we examine ourselves in light of what he has said and the scripture says, and we shape ourselves up if we're, if we're not uh, in the shape that we should be. That's what the Lord's Supper is for. Now, be turning in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. In the, in the New Testament epistles, you can find many more passages that teach on baptism than on the Lord's Supper. But you have a very long extended passage on the Lord's Supper, partly in chapter 10 and then the rest in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Plus, we have, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who write about the Last Supper where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, where he, gave, he began this thing. Let me, let me say a quick note about that, that... Um, there are those who believe that the Lord's Supper is kind of a continuation of something of the Old Testament. Some might say it's a continuation of circumcision, whereas that was what they did in the Old Testament, and that stopped, and now we do baptism. Uh, or some might say in the Old Testament they had the Passover, and, and that stopped, and now we have the Lord's Supper. Well, there may be just a parallel between those things only in, like there is a parallel between the Old and the New Testament. But the Lord's Supper is not a continuation of infant baptism or of, of uh, circumcision for infants or of, the, of uh, the Passover. The Lord instituted the Lord's Supper with the church. And as he was leaving those disciples and going away on that last night of his life on this earth, then he instituted this to be done from that point on. So uh, those who argue for infant baptism, for example, uh, kind of see that as a continuation of circumcision that you do on infants. 
and it's a continuation from the Old Testament. And then they see the Lord's Supper as, well, you, they had the Passover, we have the Lord's Supper. I say only in the sense that all of the law ended. And once those things ended, then what was done for the church is a new beginning. So we don't parallel those things or say that the Lord's Supper uh, is a continuation of the Passover or something like that. As a matter of fact, you may not know, there's been a long discussion and still is as to whether that last supper was a Passover supper or not. There are those who believe that they ate that last supper on the same night that they were eating the Passover and others who believe that the Lord's Supper was done before that. As a matter of fact, I happen to lean toward the, the view that that Last Supper was not a Passover supper. But it really doesn't matter one way or another, except that some people uh, redo the Seder Supper, the, the Passover, and in redoing that supper, sometimes they even have demonstrations before the churches and things like that, then they kind of blend in how the, the cup and the bread that Jesus was instituting for the Lord's Supper was kind of also done at the Passover Supper. Now, it may be, because I think it's hard to prove it either way, but for me, even if they were eating the Passover Supper, what Jesus did with this bread and this juice had no connection to the Passover. Uh, other than the fact that it might have been done on the same night and they, they, there might have been a cup there that could have been used for, for the Passover. But when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was a brand new thing. This is uh, my blood, uh, the new covenant in my blood and this, this bread is my body, which is going to be given for you. Uh, and, and that was done with the church. If the Passover did anything, it looked forward in kind of a cloudy, figury way that there's a, a Lamb of God coming, but they didn't even see that clearly. Whereas with the Lord's Supper, we see it clearly. This is his body. This is his blood. This is what he did for us. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're very clear about it. Uh, we know what these symbols represent. We know why we're doing it. We know what we're representing. Uh, and we have no doubt about that kind of thing. All right? Um, let me, let me uh, give you four words and, and four things to think about with the Lord's Supper as we think about it. The first one is that it's symbolism. And secondly, the participants. Thirdly, the frequency of it. And lastly, the procedure that we do it with. But first of all, the, the symbolism of it. You also know, don't you, that uh, throughout the, especially since the, um, since the Reformation days, which would have been in the 1500s, of course, that uh, churches have had three broad categories that they've practiced this with. The Roman church and some others practice what they called transubstantiation. Remember that long word, transubstantiation. What they mean is trans means to be changed. So they actually believe that their priest, through the power of the church, can take the juice and turn it into the blood of Christ. 
and take the wafer, the cracker, the, the unleavened piece of bread, and turn it into the body of Christ. So they have always believed that there's a miracle taking place. And sure enough, it would be if that were true. A miracle taking place every time uh, that uh, they do this. And uh, the priest has the power to do it. And he changes the, the juice into the actual blood of Christ and the wafer into the actual body of Christ. Now, the participants come and that wafer is placed on their tongue and so they are eating the body of Christ. Um, if we went back to John chapter 6, they rely on this chapter a lot and there are some tough statements in that chapter, long chapter. That's where Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Remember that passage? But later Jesus will say, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But from those kind of words and from their tradition, they believe in transubstantiation, that part of your salvation is to receive this grace from the church or through the church, you might say, to you. And especially in the Mass, where you are participating in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the major objection that reformers had and that others like Baptists and other independents have had is that then you are literally crucifying the Son of God afresh. Every time you do that, you are saying that Jesus Christ needs to shed his blood again and his body needs to be broken again for your salvation. And so we kind of object to that from the point of view that Jesus died once and his blood was shed once and that is good for all. And that you receive the uh, benefit of his body and blood through faith when you receive him as Savior, not through a physical act by the miracle of a priesthood and then the actual eating of the body and blood of Christ. So the mass has always been repulsive to reformers and uh, to independents as well, all right? As a matter of fact, uh, they like to call it, first of all, a sacrament rather than an ordinance. So sacrament means a means of grace. So if it's a sacrament, let me back up one step and say, you and I would believe that we are saved by faith alone, not by faith and works. But in their church, they would say it's kind of 50-50. It's 50% your faith and 50% what the church can do for you. So you need faith, and even a Roman Catholic may talk about being born again, may talk about faith in Christ. But what they may not tell you is that they can't walk away from the church. They can't say, well, I'm, I'm just not going to be a Catholic then. No, because they also know that the other 50% is the church saving you? And so the church needs to give you grace, and you need to have faith, 50-50 proposition. <clears throat> and so they can't just walk away. Martin Luther, in a great illustration he gave one time when he 
talked about his own personal, when he came to personal faith, apart from the church was, he said, I was a drowning man in the ocean and the ship going by as the Catholic church and the, and the church threw out a lifeline and said, here, hold on to this, hold on to the rope and we will pull you to shore. So half of it is you holding on and the other half is the church pulling you to shore. And he said, faith was letting go of the rope. No, it's not of your power. It is totally by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was ready to let go of it, I remember a, a lady in our church in Colorado who went to a Billy Graham crusade, heard the gospel, and got saved. And I believe she was truly born again, went, went with a friend. And so she came back, and, and she, she had grown up and lived a, a staunch Roman Catholic, St. Joseph's there in Fort Collins, Colorado. So she came back, and uh, she came in to see me because her friend had said, why don't you go see the pastor? And so she came in, and she explained how she got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. I said, that's good. And she said, uh, I'd like for you to baptize me. We'll, and we talked about baptism in the last hour. And so I said, and, and one of my questions always is, when somebody, if somebody comes to me from somewhere else and says, I've been saved, my question is, do you have a church somewhere? And if you have a church somewhere, why don't you ask them to baptize you? That would be the proper place, you know. Well, she said, I go to St. Joseph's downtown. So I'm thinking, that's interesting. So I said, uh, so are you going to leave there and you're looking for a church to go to? Oh, no, uh, no, I love my church. I love St. Joseph's. So we had this discussion. And so basically, to make a long story short, I said to her, when you are willing to leave that church and walk away from it, come back and we'll talk about baptism. In other words, when I'm convinced that you're not trusting in the church also to save you, and your salvation is by faith alone, then we'll talk about baptism. Well, I want you to know, it took a whole year, and she would come now and then, uh, and finally she became convinced, because I think she truly was born again, that what the church was teaching her and what they had taught her all her life was not right, and she finally walked away from it. She got baptized, her husband got saved and baptized, and her daughter, and they all came into the church. But it took a year to become convinced that I didn't need this part of it. I'll tell you something else that happened, too, that I think is too bad down the road in Boulder, Colorado, they started uh, Promise Keepers. Uh, Coach McCartney started this, and they had big rallies there and then across the country, and, and they would invite everybody to come, you know, men to come and, and, and be cheerleaders in a stadium and, and, and so forth. I never went, and, and partly because even in the beginning, uh, I didn't need to make any promises to anybody but God for my faith, and I wasn't interested in the, such an ecumenical thing. But, you know, later, years after it had gotten going, they, they had a meeting in Atlanta, in the stadium in Atlanta. And they had always, they had Mormons involved in it, they had Catholics involved in it and all this, but supposedly it was just kind of a general thing. But you know that they had a Roman Catholic church give the Catholic Mass in the Promise Keepers meeting in Atlanta, and all of those Baptist pastors that were there went and participated and took the Mass from the Catholic priest. 
I say that promise keepers didn't last long after that, and it shouldn't have after that. You know, the, the, the Catholic Church throughout the years, the Dark Ages and the rest, celebrated the Mass by doing two things that they called it. One was elevating the host. The host meant the, the bread that they were going to eat. And they would walk down the aisle of the church with holding it over their head to elevate the host before God, kind of like offering it up to God, come to the front, and then go through the procedure. The other was that when you came forward as a Catholic, uh, as a Catholic you kneeled before the host, that is the now the, the priest has the bread, and he's there. You come and you kneel, and he gives you the piece of bread that has been turned into the body of Christ. So elevating the host and kneeling before the host were two things that uh, were key to this procedure as they did it. Well, when persecutions began, for example, Bloody Mary in the, day, in the early 1500s in, in England. She wanted to make sure that the, there was no Church of England, that they were going to be Catholic again. She came to the throne as a Roman Catholic, and she said, you must all kneel at the altar or you will be burned. Now, somebody might say, well, what's wrong with kneeling? Well, think about it. She is demanding that you come to the altar of a Catholic church and kneel before the host, saying, I believe this is the body of Christ, and he's been crucified again by the miracle of this priest for me. And independence, like we would have been, uh, said, we can't do that. We can't come and kneel before the host. And so she burned 300 protesters uh, in Smithfield there outside of London. I've been there where, where they were burned because they would not kneel before the host, part of the, the English Reformation, and many others the same way. You know, not long ago, I could have brought this book. There are those now who, who have started what we call emergent churches, if you know that term, kind of a offspring of postmodern type things. And now there are evangelical churches who think that the way we do the Lord's Supper is too mundane. It's too boring. You know, we just have this thing here. We drink it and then we eat this and that's it. So they, have, they suggest, evangelical writers are suggesting that you do this elevation of the host. That you have the deacons come in and hold the, the trays above their heads. And, uh, you know, music will be playing and you put it on the table and then you eat it. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you know, those 300 church leaders that were burned at the stake at Smithfield would have said, what are you guys doing? You know, so anyway. So uh, we don't call it a sacrament. We don't call it a Eucharist. But by the way, some of the suggestion is we ought to maybe call it a Eucharist. That would give it a little more flavor too. Eucharist means good grace. E-U meaning good, charis meaning grace, eucharist. And so it, you do find the Greek word pronounced eucharist in the New Testament because it means to give thanks. But they, have, they took that word and put it on this procedure of the Lord's Supper, calling it the giving of thanks, eucharist. 
And so we're very careful not to use the word Eucharist, even though, yeah, it's a Greek word in the New Testament. It means good grace, good graces, and usually, usually translated uh, thankfulness. All right, let's move on. So there, there was transubstantiation. Then the, Romers, the, the Reformers came along, and they said, we don't believe that, but we do believe that Christ can be present here, and they called that consubstantiation. So rather than trans, that is changing the substance into the body of Christ, consubstantiation means the presence is with the substance. So Luther and uh, Calvin and others believed this way, that they, they had the Lord's Supper, and they still called it... Uh, 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 communion, but they believed that the that Jesus was present here in the in the elements, so that when you're take partaking it, you are kind of sharing in the presence of the Lord. Well, there were some reformers who even objected to that, and Zwingli was one of them who objected and said, "No, it's a memorial. It's Jesus present." presence isn't any more in the cracker and the juice than it is in anything else. He's present everywhere. He's present with us in our services. He's present right now in our Sunday school class. He isn't any more present with us because we would have juice and crackers in front of us. You understand what I'm saying? So independent people that were not Catholics and were not part of the major Reformation denominations like Baptists and like other uh, uh, separatists in England and Germany believe that this was simply a memorial that all we're doing is reminding ourselves and we we take it from the words of Jesus when he said this do in what remembrance of me and that's all so our history has been as, as Baptists, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm careful here not to say just Baptists, but we were some of those who always took this just to be a memorial service. And so that's, that's how we take it. Um, the pres the present, uh, president of uh, my old seminary up in uh, Minnesota, his name was uh, Richard Clearwaters. And uh, he's born in 1900, and he lived to be 90-something years old. But uh, in a book he, has, he, he wrote called The Local Church in the New Testament, he was talking about when Jesus took the bread and said, take, eat, this is my body. And of course, the Catholics saying, oh, this is the real body of Christ. Clearwaters wrote this. He says, if we were pressed with the words, this is my body, we could simply say it is a figure of speech, meaning this represents my body. Indeed, it can mean nothing else. Nobody thinks that when Jesus said, I am the vine, that he meant, I am a grapevine. Or that when he said, I am the door, that he meant, I am a wooden door. This is my body. Grammar, rhetoric, syntax, logic, and common sense compel this copula, is, to express the relation of analogy and not identity between the subject and the predicate of the sentence. <laughs> you like the way seminary presidents talk in other words this is my he, he holds up a piece of bread and says this is my body was he really saying 
this thing that I'm going to take a bite of and you're going to take a bite of is actually flesh and blood? No. This is just a symbol of my body. This represents it. And when we take the Lord's Supper, that's what we do too. We, we, uh, I, I quote that, that statement. We eat that piece of cracker and uh, uh, we know that it's cracker and that's all it is. And we think about the body of Christ. We do it in remembrance of him. So number one, it's a symbolism. Number two, the participants. Who should be doing this? Well, all uh, believers have agreed that, uh, that saved people should do this, okay? And uh, though you have to understand the, the Roman church or many Protestant churches that also baptize infants believe that in the baptizing of the infant, the infant is brought into the church. And so now that the infant is brought into the church, he deserves to participate even in this, although they would obviously have to wait till he's old enough as a boy or girl to, to actually take it. But we would say, this means nothing to you until you know Christ as Savior. The same with baptism. Baptism is a picture of this, and when you are taking the body, uh, a symbol of the body and blood, and you don't know him as Savior, uh, then, then you are uh, doing despite, as the book of Hebrews says, to the spirit of grace if you take this. So of the participants and of the view, I'm talking about among saved people who believe that a person needs to be born again. And there are, there are three positions that churches have taken, and we, we don't call each other heretics if we disagree in, the, in these three areas, but it's just three views that churches have taken. And usually they call these views open communion, close communion, and closed communion. So those who would take an open communion view are not saying open to lost people, but what they are saying is open to any believers. So anybody who, who says, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to take this. Close would add baptism to that. That's what we do in our church. So in that sense, you would say, if you have not put on the uniform if you've not made the public profession of faith, then you're not ready yet to also identify at the Lord's table. The same, the same reasoning that we would not have someone join our church unless they were baptized. We're not saying that they're not saved. We're not saying that they're not a believer. But until they make that public profession of faith, they don't qualify for membership. Well, in the same way we're saying you don't qualify for the Lord's table until not only you're truly born again, but you're willing to say that you're born again. And after all, if coming to the Lord's table is part of what you do in order to clean up your life, in order to say, Lord, am I walking right before you? Have I got all my sins confessed? Am, am I right before you? Well, then if you say everything but baptism, Lord, you know, uh, am I right in every way in my life, but don't pay any attention to my baptism. I don't want to do that yet. Well, no. So, so a person that's not baptized is disobedient. And they know that. And that should be taken care of before they take the Lord's Supper. So 
other churches have been close. And then many churches, many Baptist churches, uh, practice closed, and they simply mean by that members only. So open would be saved, close would be saved and baptized, closed would be saved, baptized, and a member of that church. So in those churches, they might have the Lord's table uh, on an off night, maybe, a Monday night, a Thursday night, something like that, or at least have it at a time when, when it's closed to non-members and only members can be there. And uh, the, the reasoning uh, primarily for that is that the New Testament does show that, that communion can be used as a disciplinary procedure when someone in the church is under rebellion toward God, that they should not be allowed to uh, participate in the Lord's Supper. How can you do that with anyone except members of your church? And so their reasoning is there's no, there's no disciplinary uh, uh, power there unless they're members of your church, and you can say to them, you're not allowed to, to have this. But uh, for me, I, I think it, since the disciplinary procedure at that point ought to primarily be uh, personal, as we'll see, then if I say you, you need to be saved, you need to have shown your salvation by baptism, the rest is up to you. And I think if a, if a Christian comes in among us and uh, is truly born again, scripturally baptized, they examine their life and it's right before God according to their conscience, then I think they should be able to take of the Lord's table with us. After all, it's something for every believer, not just for Baptists and not just for, you know, uh, a particular church. Okay, so, so those are the participants. Um, I don't have time, but it, you, you have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 10. You wondered when I was going to use it. Uh, in verse 16, notice the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Uh, communion? Fellowship, koinonia. It's the fellowshipping. It's not a sacrament. It's a fellowshipping, a, a communion. We being many are one bread and one body. We all are partakers of that one bread. And uh, I, I think you've heard me give this illustration before, but uh, many commentators have done it. You know, uh, you make bread out of a lot of stalks of wheat. You look across a wheat field, and here's all of these stalks of wheat. You, t you, you take the grain, and you crush it together, right? And you make flour out of it. And from the flour, you bake bread. And so when you eat a piece of bread, you are eating a lot of stalks of grain. And they could have come from not only all over that field, they could have come from all over anywhere. When you drink juice, you're drinking what came from many grapes not from one grape maybe not even from one grape vine but from grapes wherever they came from crushed together blended together so bread is a bunch of grain blended into one thing juice is a bunch of grapes blended into one thing and so when we partake of it we are also symbolizing the unity of the body of christ not only his body, but the body meaning the church. 
We are all participants. We are all commun- we, we are having this fellowship, this communion with the body and blood of Christ as one. All of us as stalks of grain coming from all of our backgrounds, all of our locations, wherever God has saved us from, and we've been blended together even in this very local church and in the whole body of Christ. Okay, uh, frequency then. Let me move on quickly. The Lord says in chapter 11 and verse uh, 26, you notice um, um, that uh, Paul adds there the statement from Mark and Matthew, as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come, because the Lord said, I'll not drink it again till I do it in the kingdom of God. And so as oft as you do it, a lot of communion tables, I remember, you know, that, that, are, that sit in front of the pulpit have uh, these words, uh, this do in remembrance of me or as oft as you do it. So uh, how often is that is the question, right? Well, I, I would just say, number one, not too frequently, and number two, not too infrequently. <laughs> now, it's true that some churches do this every week. And they think that the New Testament church did it every week. I grew up in a church that did it once a year. And I, I just think that's not quite enough. They did it once a year, uh, usually at the uh, watch night service. So you had to not only be there, you had to stay up late <laughs> to be there. And... Uh, and that was kind of because I, they, they basically did closed communion. But uh, I think only once a year is not enough. It's very common in churches to do it once a month, so you do it 12 times a year. For me, it's almost a little too often. I like quarterly. We do it quarterly in our church. I think it's not so often that it becomes just routine and you go through it very quickly and then it's done and then it's out of the way. But it's not so infrequent that, what is this, and when was the last time we did this? And if you missed one, now you're gonna, it's going to be two whole years between your taking of the Lord's Supper. I think that's not enough. So I like quarterly, but we can't say it must be done that way. Churches have the uh, right to, to set that however they want. Okay? Uh, he does say, even here in, uh, in verse 26, until I come, until he come, right? So we have to keep doing it until the Lord comes again. So that frequency is there, no matter whether you do it once a year or once a week. You do it till the Lord comes. That frequency is there. And then lastly, the procedure involved in this is from verse 28 to the end of the chapter. I'm, I'm speaking 1 Corinthians 11. And this is a self-examination. What is the procedure then? Look at verse 28. Let a man examine himself, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. He that drinketh, eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation. Now that's the old version. The word is judgment. To himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And by the way, I like it when somebody reminds us that word unworthily is an adverb. It's not an adjective unworthy. Because if it was unworthy, none of us could take it. Because <laughs> none of us are worthy of it. But 
we're not to do it unworthily. That is, we have things that we ought to make right with the Lord. We ought to come to Him and use this as a means to examine ourselves, confess those things before the Lord, and then we're doing it worthily, even though bottom line is, of course, we're not worthy. So I, I like that reminder. But um, he even says in verse 30, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. There's something we have forgotten that do you mean that throughout church history, there are some people that the Lord has punished through illness and sometimes premature death for abusing the Lord's table? Well, I would say that that's pretty much what verse 30 means. And I can't change that. Uh, I would never say of myself, the Lord did that. Somebody's sick because they abused the Lord's table. Somebody died prematurely because I don't know. If that happens, and verse 30 says it has, then only the Lord knows. So we can't say of somebody who's gotten sick, oh, the Lord's punishing him. You don't know that. <laughs> and maybe they don't even know that. So we don't try to take it beyond what it is. But it evidently is some kind of a, a caution to us. Verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. What is taking the Lord's table? It's judging yourself. And if you will judge yourself and look at yourself and say, I need to make this right with the Lord, then the chastisement of the Lord won't come to you. You won't be judged with the world uh, and so forth. Okay, so it is a, uh, a self-examination. And the procedure also not only is self-examination, we use our deacons, by the way, to serve because the word deacon means servant. And, and so this is one time when we gather together at a table and those that you, we have elected to serve us can actually serve us. I mean, in a very visible way. They serve in a lot of other ways you may not see. But here you see something, so it becomes a symbolism. And uh, I like the fact that then I get to turn around and serve them. After all, the Lord gave us an example of washing feet at the, at the uh, uh, Last Supper to show that we ought to come together with the mindset and attitude of serving one another. So our deacons do that and the pastors do that, and I think that's a proper thing. It's a symbol still uh, among ourselves, but I think it's a proper thing to do. So those are the symbolism, the participants, the frequency, the procedure of the Lord's table. Let's end in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, reminding us of these things. Uh, I pray that we've known them and know them now, and we will continue to learn and know more about them. And help us, Father, uh, to be more solid in our faith in understanding these ordinances that you've given to the church. Well, thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.